we're going to take a short reading from 2 Kings chapter 5, verse 1. 2 Kings chapter 5 and verse 1. Now Naaman was commander of the army of the king of Aram. He was a great man in the sight of his master and highly regarded because through him the Lord had given victory to Aram. He was a valiant soldier, but he had leprosy. Now bands from Aram had gone out and had taken captive a young girl from Israel, and she served Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, If only my master would see the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. Naaman went to his master and told him what the girl from Israel had said. By all means, go, the king of Aram replied. Well, it was wonderful to have Artie and Louise with us for the first time last Sunday in the morning services. And now Dr. Kendall is for the first time with us this season, this evening. Let's welcome him. The healing of Naaman from leprosy is uh, one of the most unusual and interesting stories in the Old Testament generally, and particularly from the accounts of the life of Elisha. Brief word of prayer. Heavenly Father, I pray now for the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus by your Spirit to rest upon every mind in this place in order that their perception of what I say will be heard as you intend. Cleanse my tongue that I will be your transparent vehicle to convey what needs to be said, nothing that doesn't need to be said. Enable me to be very, very clear, very, very simple. Let this be a life-changing word, a word that brings great honor and glory to your name. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to look tonight and the next time I speak here as we continue through this series on Elisha, the healing of Naaman, who was a general in the Syrian army called Aram. Then it's, it's the same as Syria today. Uh, Naaman was a high-ranking military officer, almost certainly a general, and uh, uh, in the army of the king of Syria. And uh, he was, therefore, an enemy of Israel. Uh, but there was peace at the time. Now, you've got to remember, throughout this story, Aram uh, was the enemy. It's the same as... Aleppo is today, uh, where the major battle took place uh, just two years ago. Uh, and whereas today, it, Syria is still an enemy of Israel. That's the way it was then when it was called Aram. And uh, so Naaman was not an Israelite. Uh, and he was not a part of the covenant of God of Israel. Uh, if anything, Naaman could be regarded as, as an enemy of Israel. Israel, and yet we're going to see how he was miraculously healed. And yet the, the unsung hero of this story is not Naaman, and it's not even 
Elisha. But it was a young servant girl, probably a teenager. We don't even know her name. And we'll not know till we get to heaven. But what she did was to turn everything around and it was a major incident. Now, why is this word important? Well, for one reason, it shows how the least gift can be used to do a major thing. There is uh, in the chapter of 1 Corinthians 12 a list of the various gifts of the Spirit. And do you know what is probably the most important and yet the least recognized? It's called the gift of helps. Uh, my friend Graham Lacey's here tonight. He's written a book on the gift of helps. Uh, the ESV translated, uh, translated helping. Uh, in 1 Corinthians 12, you have where Paul describes the body. Uh, there's the head, there's the eye, there's the ear, uh, the hands, the feet. Where there is profile and visible, visibility. And uh, many people want gifts like that. But at the bottom of 1 Corinthians 12, he just mentions this little word, helps. The gift of helping. Um, and uh, I wonder if you've ever thought much about that. Uh, let's put it this way. Suppose at the end of my sermon tonight, I uh, say, how many here would like the gift of miracles? And for all that want the gift of miracles, you come down on this side and we will pray for you. If you'd like the gift of prophecy, come down on this side. Uh, the gift of healing, you come down on this side and we will pray for you to have these gifts. But then I'm also going to suggest if you would like the gift of helps, would you come down on this side? I wonder how many would come on this side. You see, the trouble with the gift of helps, there's no profile. Uh, you wouldn't know about them. Uh, you wouldn't notice it at all if someone was being helpful. And so this gift of helps, the most underestimated, and that is why this is a, an important word. Because we're going to talk about a girl who is, a uh, is just a maid to her mistress and makes a suggestion that changes everything. Now, an interesting comment, I don't know if you noticed it, uh, as Bruce read, but we're told that the Lord, the God of Israel, gave the victory to Naaman. And you, you look again, wait a minute, uh, God of Israel would give the victory to Syria? Read it again. But that's exactly what it says. The God of Israel gave Naaman the victory over Syria. And it doesn't say Syria's God uh, gave the victory. It doesn't say Baal gave the victory. It says the God of Israel gave Naaman the victory over, uh, uh, 
gave, gave the victory so that Syria uh, won. You say, well, what's going on here? Is the God of Israel turned against Israel? Well, for a while, yes. And it's an important thing to learn here that all victories in war, God does it. Now, he may not be called the God of Israel, but God holds the nations of the world in his hand, and he determines victory. And God gave the victory, and it was not for Israel. I wonder how many of you may have seen the... Uh, uh, movie uh, it came out a few weeks ago called Darkest Hour. Anybody see that? It's about Winston Churchill, World War II, when a quarter of a million of British soldiers were trapped on the western edge of France, and Hitler's army was coming, and they were gradually just taking over France, and would push all the Brits, all the soldiers of Britain, into the sea, and there were conferences. What do we do about it? Well, there are many in Parliament. In fact, most said, we need to make a deal. I'll make a deal with Hitler and do something like that. And it was Winston Churchill who said, no, we'd rather die than for the swastika to fly over Buckingham Palace. And then something happened, but you wouldn't know it by seeing the film. It's a great pity. This is the movie industry today. It's Hollywood, wherever they make movies, it seems. They don't want to give God any glory. What they don't tell you is that King George VI, the Prime Minister, and the Archbishop of Canterbury called the nation of England to prayer. And do you know what? At the very time as Hitler's army was coming westward, and a quarter of a million of, of British soldiers, they were helpless. They were helpless. Suddenly, and nobody knows why, Hitler's army just turned and went a different direction, and it gave time for boats by the dozens and dozens to come to France and take the British soldiers home. A quarter of a million were saved. God did that. And the, do you know when was the last time that Her Majesty or His Majesty or a Prime Minister or an Archbishop of Canterbury called the nation of Israel to prayer? It was D-Day, regarding D-Day in 1944. That's how long it has been. They just don't do that anymore. And even when they make a film, they leave the most important part out. But the point is, it was God who gave the victory. Now, in this case, uh, it was not the God of Syria. It wasn't Baal. It's explicit. The God of Israel gave the victory to Israel's enemy, the Lord God of Israel. Now, the issue, therefore, we could ask... How should we refer to God today? Should we call him the God of Israel? Because that's the same God as we're talking about in the Bible. Well, possibly not. Uh, 
Should we say the God of Great Britain? Maybe not. The God of America? The God of the Bible Belt? I think the answer is we should unashamedly refer to the true God as the God of the Bible. That is what we should refer to him as. The God of the Bible. And you will get it right. And you're not taking sides with any nation. Now, in this passage, we find the true God at work. Uh, and it was then the God of Israel. Now, here's what you have. First of all, the God of Israel at work in a surprising place. It was in Syria, where, as I said, Aleppo is today. Uh, a couple years ago, I don't know if you would know about it over here, but there was a man running for president. He was the governor of New Mexico. And uh, at the height of the war going on in Syria, and it was right at Aleppo, it was in bloodshed, thousands slaughtered, it was awful. And a reporter asked this person running for president, uh, what would you do with regard to Aleppo today? And the presidential candidate said, where? He said, Aleppo. Aleppo? What is Aleppo? And the reporter had to explain to the man running for president, that's where the battle is right now, sir, and where thousands are being slaughtered. Well, two weeks later, the man was out of the race. He didn't know what was going on. But I wonder how many of us are like that. We become so preoccupied with what we want, what we see, and we are not aware of what is going on in the world. Well, called Aram, a god was at work there in probably the 8th century BC. Um, and Syria, where you would least to expect for God to be at work. Now, you might expect God to be work, at work in the church. And I sense a great uh, sense of expectancy as Chris was praying tonight. And it could be that we're on the brink of something amazing. And it may not be far off. And so if we said God is at work in the church, we would expect that. Or God is at work in the Church of England. Or at All Souls Langham Place. Or Holy Trinity Brompton. You could say, well, God is at work. But at work in a nation? Could God be at work in Aleppo today? Or in Iraq? Is it possible? Or in your workplace? Has it crossed your mind that God could be at work right under your nose and you don't see it? For the thing is, there is nothing impossible with God and nothing should surprise us. Well, now, this man, Naaman, he was a friend of the king, a man of considerable standing, uh, and all the interpreters of this passage point out that he was very wealthy as well. Uh, and yet there was one drawback. It talks about this man, Naaman, 
And then it adds, but he had leprosy. But he was a leper, a drawback. I don't know if you've ever thought about it. Did you know there is at least one drawback with all of us? Calvin said that in every saint, there is something reprehensible. Does that surprise you? Are you going to say, well, it may be with others, but not with me? Well, think about it. And I would add, there's something reprehensible in every wealthy person, in every leader, in every politician. There is no one who does not have a skeleton in his or her cupboard. In the case of Naaman, he was wealthy. He just won an amazing victory. But then it says, but he had leprosy. And it was a stigma in, that, in those days. Uh, leprosy was a disease that causes uh, 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 disintegration of the muscles uh, of, of the body uh, and uh, results in crippling uh, blindness sometimes, certainly isolation. Uh, did you know there are three million in the world today with leprosy? And every two minutes, somebody is diagnosed with leprosy. And uh, in this passage, we find that the true God was at work. And it had to do with this. But in a surprising place. And so the thing about being wealthy, there are advantages. Uh, you get the best health care. You get the best medicine. You get the best vitamins and food supplements. Uh, so there are advantages. But then the thing is, eventually ill health comes to all. And so though Naaman was a friend of the king, uh, his friendship with the king was of no value when it came to leprosy. His standing in ancient Syria was of no value. His wealth was of no value. His future was bleak. But he could not have known that God was on his case and God was at work in a surprising place. I wonder if there's someone here. You're not conscious that God is on your case. And you say, me? He's not even aware of me. But this is a wonderful thing. God loves every man as if there were no one else to love, as St. Augustine put it. And God is on our case. And we find out later that he was looking after us. Even before we were converted, long before we were saved, God knew what it took to get us to a particular place. And so it turns out God was at work in a surprising place and then there emerged a surprising peacemaker. It was an Israeli girl, probably a teenager. In fact, the ESV says, a little girl from the land of Israel. 
She was a nameless person, just a young girl from Israel. I wonder, I've, I've thought about this, if later on in life, if this account was written up and she were to read it, and she says, that's me. And they don't even give my name. You know, there's something about all of us. Uh, we like to hear our names mentioned. We all like the sound of our name, and we don't like it if it's mispronounced or even misspelled. I don't even like it when they spell Kendall with one L. I want to explain to them, there are two L's. Uh, we're all wired in such a way. Also, we want uh, significance. And uh, the, the truth is, uh, this is what anybody wants. We're all made to want significance. Well, we're talking now about a surprising peacemaker. Uh, we don't know her name, but I can tell you one thing. Her name was written in heaven. Jesus said, rejoice, not because you've got power over the demonic, but rejoice because your names are written in heaven. There's no name given to this girl in this description, but her name was written in heaven. Have you ever asked that question about yourself? Is your name written there? Uh, back in the hills of Kentucky, I grew up uh, singing this song. I don't know whether you've ever heard it. It goes something like this. Lord, I care not for riches, neither silver nor gold. I would make sure of heaven I would enter the fold in the book of thy kingdom with its pages so fair. Tell me, Jesus, my Savior, is my name written there? If you know it, sing it with me. Is my name written there on the page white and fair in the book of thy kingdom? Is my name written there? And if you know it is, you can sing. Yes, my name's written there on the page white and fair in the book of thy kingdom. Yes, my name's written there. Let me ask you this. How many of you were on the Queen's list uh, last January the 1st when the honors were meted out? We'd like to know about you. Anybody here? Amanda, were you at the Queen's Garden Party? You're not on the list? Oh, my. How many of you, your names were written in today's Sunday Times? No? How about the Sunday Telegraph? The Mail? 
The question is, where your name is written, you might like the immediate feeling of being chuffed to see your name in print. But the question of questions, is your name written there? We don't know the name of this girl. And I can tell you, she was the least likely to be a person of influence. You know, in these days, uh, women are more and more getting influence, and they're elbowing their way in the feminist movement, which, I don't care if I'm quoted, I'm being filmed, is of the devil. And it is spread, and women have taken over, and it's got right into the modern Bibles. They're changing the gender in certain Bibles so that there may be a time when one major leader recently said, maybe we'll have to quit calling God he. How bad has it got? But in those days, the least likely person would be a woman, not to mention a young girl. And uh, she had been taken in battle. In that battle that Syrian won over Israel, she was taken. She was kidnapped. She was stolen, taken from her parents. And an Israeli girl, now living in the household of the general that defeated Israel. And uh, you could call her an enemy. From the very Israel that Aram had just fought over and whom they won this huge battle. And you would expect her to be against Israel. Uh, perhaps you would expect her to be a spy. But she wasn't clever enough to be anything like that. She was a slave girl of Naaman's wife. Here's the thing about her. We don't know her name, but we know this. She was submissive. Uh, it would have been easy for her to be bitter, but she submitted to the Lord's will, and she knew God put her there. Let me ask you, are you at the moment where you don't want to be? Are you living where you don't want to live? You're having to work where you don't want to work. You've got a job that you hate. That was this Israeli girl taken from her parents. But she had a sense of knowing, being brought up under the covenant of Israel, that God is sovereign. And he does all things according to his own sovereign will. She was submissive. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul talks to those who were Christians who were slaves. Paul said, each one should remain in the situation which he was in when God called him. But he goes on to say, were you a slave when you were called? Don't let it trouble you. And then he says, if you can gain your freedom, uh, do so. But the point is, you don't fight against it. And maybe you don't like your job. It's all right to say, Lord, please move me on. But until he does, would you be submissive? And that's the amazing thing. She was submissive. She spoke. She spoke up. She could have been silent. Uh, but she noticed that her mistress's husband had this impediment. It was a stigma. Leprosy. 
Perhaps one of his hands were about to fall off or some awful spot on his body. We don't know the extent of it. But it was a terrible stigma. And she thought about it. And she decided to speak up. She could have been silent. But instead, she spoke a word. Um, you know, there are Christians who believe when you witness... You only witness with your life. Don't speak. Don't want to offend anybody at work. Don't want to offend anybody you ride on the bus with. Uh, just live the life before them. And they will see that there's something different about you. Uh, Arthur Blessed tells this story. It's so funny to me. There was this lady in, in California who had that view. You don't talk to people about Jesus. You just witness by your life. And she'd been at this workplace for 13 years. Never said a word about being a Christian. But one day, someone came up to her and said, let me ask you a question. Sure. I've been watching you. There's something different about you. And at this moment, this lady begins to say, thank you, Lord. Thank you. Thank you, Jesus. And then the question came, are you a vegetarian? <laughs> the Israeli girl, she was submissive. She spoke. She was selfless. She never called attention to herself. And the interesting thing is she was sure. She spoke from what she knew. She had reason to know firsthand that if somehow her master, Naaman, could get to Israel and see the prophet, she would be cured. And she was so sure. She said this to her mistress, the wife of Naaman, if only, these are her words, if only my master would see the prophet who's in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. She spoke with such certainty. She was unashamed of Elisha. Well, now, the question is, has she now turned her back on Israel? Has she sided with the enemy? No. It was simply that she had compassion for Naaman, her master. Though held captive in Israel, she knows who can help. Uh, let me ask you. You are a witness in a godless world. You know who can help. Do you tell people about Jesus? When is the last time you talked to someone else about Jesus. A few weeks after I became the minister at Westminster Chapel, I asked this question one Sunday morning. I remember it well. I said, how many of you in this congregation right now, how many of you have never led a soul to Jesus Christ? And then I went on. 
I found out later that one of the men, his name was Bob George, brought up brethren. 60 years old, he said, I was shaken. I said to myself, I've never led anybody to the Lord, ever. He felt so ashamed. And so some years later, when we started our pilot light ministry, Bob George was the first to join us on the street when we had six people when we started the pilot light ministry. And um, 20 years later, uh, just before he died, I asked him, how many do you reckon you've invited people to receive Jesus? He said, just over 500. That doesn't mean all 500 were saved, but some of them were. One of them went into the Anglican ministry. I guess you have to be saved to be an Anglican minister. <laughs> and then his son, Malcolm George, who was spastic, and he had this muscular dystrophy, and he could hardly speak, and walked with a great limp all his life. He was born this way. And when he talked, it was something like this. I could never understand him. Louise could. Louise had a gift that she could always understand him. And uh, Malcolm came in to the uh, parlor after church one Sunday night. And he decided he would spill his guts to Louise. And he said to her, I'm just a waste of space. I go out on the streets, nobody wants my tracks, and I can't speak to them, and they can't understand me, and I think I'll stop going out. I promise you, within three seconds of that conversation, a lady came in and said, there he is, pointing to Malcolm. That lady had been given a tract the day before in French. Prayed to receive the Lord, came to Westminster Chapel, went forward at the end of the service and went to our Virgin's wife, Marta Jinks, and said, I'd sure like to meet the person who gave me this tract. Marta spoke French and said, well, we can look around. And said so they looked all over the chapel and came into the church parlor, and there was Louise and Malcolm, when he had just said, I'm just a waste of space, I'll give up. She said, there he is. And can you imagine what that did to encourage Malcolm? God knows when we need a word. He's never too late. He's never too early. He's always just on time. Uh, That same lady who lived in Paris was a businesswoman, and whenever she would come to London, she'd stay over Sunday and would sit with Malcolm and the look on his face to see her with him. To make us aware that God is at work in a way we never think he's at work, and it's always a way of surprising us. Uh, and uh, so I'm just asking you, do you talk to people about Jesus? Another thing about this Israeli girl, you've got to remember, she was a foreigner. She was a foreigner. 
Do you know what it's like to be a foreigner? Well, that's what she was. She's a foreigner, foreigner, an Israeli girl in Syria. Uh, the day was that British missionaries went all over the world to tell them about Jesus. Americans sent missionaries all over the world. And one of the places was Korea. Do you know there are now more missionaries to America, and maybe in Britain, I don't know about it in America, that are Koreans than any other nationality. Koreans are now sending their missionaries to America. In fact, two weeks ago, I spoke in a church in Los Angeles. A thousand members of Koreans, one of the most influential churches in California. Koreans, foreigners. Are you a foreigner? Anybody here a foreigner? Let me ask you a question. Are you aware if it weren't for foreign Christians in Britain, the statistics would not be as good as they are? I don't know that I'm up to date, but it was 4% of Britain would call themselves Christians, committed Christians. If it weren't for Christians from Nigeria, Kenya, Ghana, South Africa, the number would be probably 3%. Foreigners. Let me ask this. Wait, uh-oh. What nation did I leave out? Okay. Okay, let's, here, I give myself a second chance. I give you a second chance. I want every person here who was not born in England, Wales, Scotland, or Ireland, would you just, right now, if you were not born in this country, would you stand up? I want you to look around. Listen, you are that 4%. Are you being a good foreigner for Jesus? You can sit down now. All right. She was a surprising peacemaker. That's it. it. God was at work in a surprising place. And the thing is, God was at work with this person who was a surprising peacemaker. That's what she was doing. You see, a peacemaker. Do you know the greatest peacemaker in the world is one who leads a person to Jesus Christ. Have you ever had the experience of trying to be a peacemaker? It's one of the most dangerous things you can ever do. Try getting two people together that won't speak to each other. And you know what happens? They turn on you. <laughs> I've had it happen. I know people now. I know if only I could get one to go to the other. I know what would happen. Instead of speaking to each other, they'd go on me, leave us alone. It's dangerous. But Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers, for they should be called the children of God. Well, this nameless young girl, she's unashamed, unsophisticated. You would probably call her a nobody. Her name would not appear in society columns 
There was no pedigree, no referees. She was unconnected to those with influence. Heaven will be filled with people who were unknown on earth. And the rewards at the judgment seat of Christ will be meted out to nameless people. So a surprising place, a surprising peacemaker. Uh, and when I think of the judgment, I think of this a lot. How people that you never knew about are going to get recognition. If I understand 1 Corinthians 3, it could be that at the judgment seat of Christ, those with the highest profile will be last to be noticed. Let's picture it. I don't know what it's going to be like. It's hard to imagine. But there's coming a day of days. Paul said we must all stand before the judgment seat of Christ and give an account of the things done in the body. And so, whether they call out a name, I thought it might be like that. But picture this. You're about to witness Christians getting their rewards. Do you think it will be the Billy Grahams of this world that will be recognized first? I doubt it. Listen to this. A name is given to the vast crowd of millions. Yvette Cutter. Yvette Cutter. Yvette Cutter. Yvette Cutter. Do you know Yvette Cutter? And little Yvette Cutter says, I'm Yvette Cutter. Oh, they're calling for you. Me? Yes. And she goes and stands before Jesus. And he looks at her and says, Yvette, I saw you with your bipolar illness in Gordon Hospital there in Westminster. I know how you were treated at home. And I saw you when you were weeping. And you're making every effort just to praise the Lord. The reason I know that is because Fred Jinks, our verger at the time, came and he said, I want to tell you, I went to see Yvette Cutter yesterday in Gordon Hospital. And she was really low. And he said, Yvette, what are you doing? She said, Dr. Kendall said that when we feel low, we should just praise the Lord. And that's all I'm doing. I'm just praising the Lord. That moved me no end. And perhaps you. You will never be invited to Buckingham Palace. Your name will never appear in the Sunday Times. But it will be worth it all. Your name written in heaven, and then you're singled out, and you didn't think he even noticed when you turned the cheek when you were mistreated. You didn't complain when you lived without vindication. You were lied about. Your spouse was unfaithful. And the hurt, so deep. But you maintained a spirit of total forgiveness. And you wondered at times, was it worth it? It'll come out. It'll be worth it all when we see Jesus. Life's trials will seem so small when we see him.
and rewards at the judgment seat of Christ will be given to billions of nameless people. Surprising place. Surprising peacemaker. But it was a surprising proposal. Here's what this Israeli girl said. If only my master would see the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. You know, when we think of the phrase, if only, it's usually in a negative sense. Uh, you think of the words, uh, if only, the implication being, if only these two people could have met sooner. Or, if only this had happened yesterday. Or Jesus wept over the city of Jerusalem and said, if only you had known what belonged to your peace. Because usually the phrase, if only, has negative implications. But not this one. This Israeli girl said, if only my master would see the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him. You know, this proposal was far-fetched, out of the blue, from this nameless person. <laughs> the idea was so implausible. If he would go to Samaria and get healed, she was fearless. Imagine an Israeli girl speaking of a prophet in Israel, in a country not your own. It was a faith proposal. He would get cured. Well... Who would have thought it? Naaman's wife told her husband about the slave girl's proposal. Now, Naaman is a general. He's prestigious. He's powerful. His reaction could easily have been, you've got to be joking. Is slave girl of yours? Nonsense. But you know what? Whereas he might have dismissed it out of hand, we read... Naaman went to the king. Why would he do it? What persuaded him? And then, behold, the king himself says, yes, you should go to Israel. Why then was Naaman persuaded? Why was the king persuaded? Such a word coming from a, a nobody, a nameless person with no pedigree, no background. Why? Well, I'll tell you why. They were desperate. They had nothing to lose. No one had a plan. The servant girl's message was different. It was unique. And it had a ring of authority. From the mouth of babes, God uses to speak the truth. And immediately, he said, I'm going to go for it. A ring of authority. The same way our gospel when we preach, this is something that will work. You are lost. You are going to hell. And the only thing that will matter 100 years from now, I said to Yasser Arafat, the first 10 minutes I was with him, I said, Ra'is, the most important question to ask is, where will you be 100 years from now? It won't matter then whether you or the Israelis get Jerusalem. Where will you be? I thought he would throw me out. I visited him five times. We became friends. 
have reason to believe he'll be in heaven. That's another story. So don't clap. I don't know that, but I have reason to believe. Here's the thing. I'm asking somebody here, somebody here, perhaps only one person, you need to know God's on your case. And whatever's bothering you at the moment, however difficult it is, and the future looks bleak, 100 years from now, what's bothering you now won't even be remembered. But you might think of these words then, if only. I hate to say it, but there are people in hell, as I speak, who are saying, if only I had listened to the people on the street giving me tracts as Louise and I came across around Boots. There were some of you people giving out tracts. You see, I did that for 20 years at Westminster. I'm 100% for people that do this. Talking about Jesus, you never know what good you will do. And you may not have thought that you're here on purpose, but God is on your case. And so, imagine this. The king of Aram writing a letter to the king of Israel. And guess who was behind it? Got to be a person of influence. I don't know that uh, Naaman had the courage to say to the king, it's a servant girl who told me about her, but he wants to go. The king says, go for it. From a servant girl with no connections, she just knew what would happen if only he could get there. And I'm saying to you, if only you right now would pray this prayer if you don't know for sure that if you were to die today, that you would go to heaven, would you pray this prayer right now? You don't need to say it out loud. Say it in your heart. God will see you. Lord Jesus, I need you. I want you. I know I'm a sinner. I am sorry for my sins. Wash my sins away by your blood. I welcome your Holy Spirit into my heart. As best as I know how, I give you my life. 